right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. We are still off filming season eight of Taurus Sauce at an undisclosed location. All right, it's Scandinavia. We've given that away through various mediums along the way. We are not watching golf this week. Do not have a recap tonight. I'm going to be doing a recap tomorrow on Monday with a guest talking about Liv Bedminster. I'm I'm hoping Tony Finau pulls it out. Uh, As of right now, I don't know what the final result is of the Rocket Mortgage, but we will be doing a recap later this week. But uh, I wanted to go ahead and publish this episode, this interview with Katrina Matthew. Recorded this a couple weeks ago. Previewing the AIG Women's Open at Muirfield this coming week. Um, We get into a lot of details as to why she's a great person to talk to about all of this. And we're very excited for this championship coming up. Big Randy's going to be there, actually, over the weekend. So we're uh, very excited about that. We'll have a full debrief on that on next week's pod. You can get in on the hottest sports action for your shot at cold hard cash with DraftKings Sportsbook. You can bet on your favorite sports all summer long and gear up for football season right now. New customers can get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. Just make your first bet up to $1,000, and if it doesn't hit, you'll get another shot at a big win. You can feel the thrill of every sports season in a whole new way by betting on baseball, golf, MMA, and more. And with same-game parlays, spreads, money lines, over-unders, and props, your betting options are endless. And best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw cash whenever you want. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code NLU when you make your first deposit and you get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code NLU, only the DraftKings Sportsbook. And uh, if you really want you know, to see the, uh, if you want some hot golf picks, I regrettably have to say uh, TC continues to just absolutely tear it up in our weekly uh, Tuesday picks that you can find on our YouTube channel. So Without any further delay, here is Katrina Matthew. So you've grown up in North Berwick, a stone's throw away from Muirfield. Did you ever think we'd be talking about an AIG Women's Open at Muirfield? No, no. Growing up, um, never thought that. I mean, obviously, you know, with the history, obviously, I've watched a lot of men's opens there, but never, never really imagined, um, you know, obviously, at the time, it was an all-male club. I never thought we'd be playing a AIG Women's Open there. So it's fantastic. I must say, I'm really looking forward to playing at, at Muirfield. Can you give our listeners just a bit of a of a history lesson in terms of of what played out at Muirfield over the last decade and, and kind of a, you know a, a policy there that has long uh, been changed at so many other places in Scotland that they dragged their feet to to change and how that has affected the image of Scottish golf maybe around the world. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously you know golf started here in Scotland and it had you know its many traditions and when golf started you know 150 200 years ago. It was male only and there were a lot of male only golf clubs here. And, uh, you know, the honourable company of Edinburgh golfers who play at Muirfield happens to be one of them. But I think you've seen that in the last, as you say, 10 or 15 years. All these courses are, are you know, moving with the times and, you know, letting ladies in to be members. And, and Muirfield was one of them. So, um, you know, obviously it's I think they've got, you know, quite a few lady members now. Uh, one of my friends is actually a member, so she takes me on quite often, which is good. But yeah, I mean, I think. And now to have the women's open there is just, you know, is, is just kind of the, the icing on the cake, I think, for them. It shows the world now really how they've changed and how they're progressing, which is great to see. 
Oh, I think it, uh, it, it just from American perspective of that's always been the, the reputation of that place is like what it's known for. And I just think it, it, it almost overshadows what is uh, a tremendous golf course and, and it deservingly overshadows because it was such a, a such a bizarre policy. But what what is your uh, you know, talk, tell us about the golf course. It's been nine years since we've seen it on the men's side on television. Um, I'm guessing some some listeners will need a little bit of a refresher of what it's like and what makes it so special. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously I've been lucky enough to play most of the links course in the in the open rota I think St George's is the only one I haven't you know Muirfield is probably up there as one of the best it's not a typical links course and that you don't really see the sea from it but it's and you know the course it moves in all sorts of different directions all the holes go I mean North Berwick where I grew up is you know eight out one across and, and nine back in a very traditional links but um, Muirfield in that respect kind of goes around in little circles which which in a way makes it very tricky because in the wind, you know, the wind's always coming from a different direction. You get a lot of crosswinds, you know, downwind into the wind. So every hole's different. And I think it's just, I think the, the you know, the more I play it, it's the, the par threes are super tricky. I think if anyone has uh, placed par threes in level par, they'll be happy. What, can you tell us a little bit about how the AIG Women's Open has progressed and and kind of the golf courses that we see it going to? And not only, you know, the past several years have gone to, you know, Carnoustie and Troon and uh, Royal Lytham, where you won in 2009 as well. But looking at Walton Heath, Old Course, Royal Porth Call into the future. I, I talked to a lot uh, in talking to a lot of the women that play on the LPGA Tour. They are they always get super excited to play at courses that men's majors have been held on. Can you, uh, you, can you uh, relate to that and kind of give us an idea as to why that is so important and, uh, and how you see that playing out? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think, as you say, in the last 15 years, we have gone to all these open road to courses. And I think for, for non-British players, I think that's the courses, you know, as golfers, they've watched the, the men's open and they've seen all these courses over the years in television. You know, they've seen, you know, Seve win, Watson win, Faldo, all these people on, on all these different golf courses. So I think you always want to... It's, it's great to go to a golf course that you've seen on TV and knows, know the history about. And, you know, you've always got, you know, everyone watches the men's open, sees who wins it. Uh, you know, obviously St. Andrews just the other day. I think for the ladies, it's just great to come to all these two, uh, golf courses. What's the vibe been like around town, around North Berwick for, uh, for this championship coming this direction? Yeah, it's been busy. Uh, you know, we've obviously had uh, the men's Scottish Open at uh, Renaissance, which is just along here, and then all the signs are up, and they're all up for the Muirfield one, the AIG Women's Open at Muirfield. So uh, there's a real buzz about the place. Um, you know, in the summer, this little area, we're kind of, we've got so many golf courses, we're just inundated with uh, visitors, uh, mostly Americans, I must say, coming over to play them. So um, there's just, every summer, there's always a buzz, but extra special this year with having the AIG Women's Open at Muirfield. Plus two years of people having backed up trips that probably are all falling in the uh, in the same time period. So I'm sure it's been yeah, quite a busy I, summer. Of course, it's tough to get tea times. Eh? Of course, <laughs> players saying, oh, can you get me on North Grand? So it's not quite that easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, it's probably an easy question to answer, but what can we expect out of the golf course You know, for the championship? We're recording this fresh off watching the men's open at St. Andrews, baked out, fast and firm, renaissance right down the road from your field was the same for the men's Scottish. I, is it safe to assume we're going to get a fast and firm one at Muirfield unless we get a, a deluge of rain in the coming weeks? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're having a kind of mini heat wave over here at the moment, uh, kind of baking in 30 degree heat, which is completely unknown over here. So I think they're definitely going to be firm and fast, um, obviously, unless we get rain, which doesn't look as though it's going to get in the forecast. So I think it's going to be a great test this year. Uh, it's going to be a bit like St. Andrews, firm, fast. The rough won't be as thick because we've not had the rain, but 
you know, it's still going to be that wispy kind of grass that catches your club face and, you know, kind of can twist it over. So it's going to be a real challenge. I mean, and I mean, like any links course, it's all going to depend the week on whether we get wind or not. If we get wind, um, it could be quite the test. <laughs> Is there any anything unique about Muirfield in terms of what you know about the course, in terms of what kind of test it's going to be, right? We watched it, you know, again, coming off the men's open, we watched, you know, Laval, the really long game was really important, and then lag putting and feel around the greens with wedges. It wasn't so much of a mid-iron test. It wasn't, you know, what, what anything that sticks out as a highlight skill to say Muirfield in particular is going to test your blah, blah, blah. What would your answer be to that? I think Muirfield's going to be, it's going to be a test off the tee. Uh, if you can keep it on the fairway, you know, give yourself a shot into the green. They're not, as you say, it's going to be playing firm and fast, so it's not going to play particularly long. So I think if you drive it well and then have that imagination around the green where you can, you know, maybe putt from 20 yards off uh, chips. So I think short game and driving are going to be the two keys. I think, as you say, the course is going to play pretty short. So um, they're the two things, I would say. You won the 2009 Women's British Open at, uh, I don't remember what it was called at that time, at Royal Lytham in St. Anne's. What was, what, tell people what was unique about the timing of that win. Well, that win was um, 11 weeks after I'd just given birth to Sophie, our second daughter. So um, it was only my second tournament back. I played in Evian the week before, just as a little warm-up uh, so, I mean, to be honest, I went in that week with uh, very low expectations, which I think probably helped me because I didn't put, the, didn't put any pressure on myself. And um, probably wasn't until the Saturday night that I suddenly started getting nervous, thinking, my God, I might actually win this thing. And then I was fortunate, actually, coming up 18, I had a three-shot lead. So if anyone's played Lytham, it's a pretty treacherous tee shot with all the gorse right and lots of bunkers. So um, once I'd hit the fairway, I knew I'd won it. So it was, uh, it was a really nice walk up there with my husband on the bag. Katrina, you should hear the excuses I come up with for why I can't play great golf. And <laughs> like it would, you would laugh so hard compared to winning a major championship 11 weeks after giving birth. I, I truly can't understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, you don't even think about it. Um, but it's more now when you look back, you think, God, I wonder how on earth I did that. I think at the time, you're just, I was probably in a, in a kind of haze, probably so exhausted just getting on with it, getting on the course. Uh, Sophie had a bit of colic, so she uh, she cried a lot. So probably a bit of relief getting on the golf course. I don't think it, I think you may have a record for the shortest marked putt uh, that we'll ever see in major championship history because you lagged it up to about two inches, if I may say. But you don't want to putt out, and before your playing partners have putted out. But I got a good laugh out of seeing you put a coin down as yeah. close to the hole as you did. <laughs> and I think I had about six putts, so I really didn't need to take. <laughs> I think I was playing with Christina Kim, so it's always nice to you know to let them finish. What is you know I I watch a, a lot of golf and you know we we you know play a, a fair amount of golf and we have our own pressures that we put ourselves. Every golfer has a pressure they put on themselves to achieve something, and when you're doing it at the highest level of the professional game, what is what is the pressure like? What is it like trying to perform under pressure with? You know, when you get to the 18th hole with a three shot lead, that's different than with four holes to go. This is still very much in question. I, I can't play a round of golf without, you know, a competitive round without picturing myself holding the trophy without skipping way past all the stuff you're not, you're definitely not supposed to do, but you've done it before. What what was your mind like at that time? What What is it like competing in the highest level? I mean, to be honest, I think your mind does try to skip forward and you, you kind of can imagine and then you try and say, no, no, don't think about that. Just think about the next shot. Um, I think when you're up there kind of vying to win a tournament, you're playing well, so you're not really quite as concerned about um you know hitting good shots or that um I think it's more just trying to keep in I mean it's in the moment you know kind of just try 
for me, when I get nervous, I tend to get fast. So all I just tell myself is, you know, keep it smooth. And that, that's really all. It's trying to keep it simple. It's, I suppose as a golfer, I always seem to play my best when I'm thinking about the least. So um, I try and not think about, try and not think about anything, to be honest. And that's uh, usually playing the best. It's when you start thinking about your swing, thinking about where you should hit it, thinking about what could go wrong. That's when things happen to go wrong. <laughs> And I'm only adding this in here for the listener's sake. I mean, nothing with this commentary, but you are 52 years old and you are still competitive in this, in this, you've been competitive in this event well, I for, <laughs> I mean, you had a T5 in 2016, you got, you, you were competitive again in 2018, if you will. And uh, so what, what, what do you owe that to? What, you know, how kind of give the listeners an idea of where, where you are in your golf career and how, uh, how you determine when, uh, you know, your most competitive times are going to be. Um, well, no, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm playing a whole lot. I'm playing, you know, I play a few events on the on the European tour, the ladies European tour, obviously going to play in the AIG Women's Open with it being at Muirfield and myself just living along the road from there. Uh, I suppose my main focus this year probably is the the senior US Open. Um, as my kids would be brutally honest and say, that's the one you've got a chance of winning. <laughs> but um, I think, I mean, you know, I take hope from what I remember watching Watson at uh, Turnberry. I think a Lynx course is one where you don't need to overpower it. It's not length. Because, I mean, obviously nowadays, um, you know, my swing speed's not as fast. I'm not not as strong as some of these younger players, so not hitting it as far. But I think a Lynx course, and especially with growing up on Lynx courses, it's a lot of imagination and playing kind of different shots. So I think of any of the golf courses I would play nowadays, the Lynx course is one I've got a, a, ch- a chance on if I play well. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it also couldn't help but note that you won the women's Scottish open twice at Archer field, but does that feel, does that feel a little bit unfair to win twice at a course that, you know, it looks like you could walk to from where you live. I feel like that feels a little bit. <laughs> I don't think that's unfair. Cause I always think it's hard. It's always harder to win at home. <laughs> that could be true. You, you grew up in North Berwick, as I understand it, extremely close to the golf course, right? And that is the golf course you grew up playing did you have any idea that you were playing on one of the world's greatest golf courses no you don't I mean it was funny I was just at St Andrews um recently uh, receiving an honorary graduate and you know it was when they were, they were all talking about when they first came to St Andrews but I think when you when you grow up in these courses you don't realize kind of how iconic and how good they are until I remember saying it wasn't until I started traveling and you kind of think oh everyone else wants to come here but when it's, it's like anything, when it's on your doorstep, you kind of do take it for granted. Um, but I think now, you know, I've traveled and been more places, um, seen other golf courses, and I probably fully appreciate, um, you know, that how, how great these golf courses are that I grew up on. What's it? What's the tourism industry been like in, in your part of the world as you've seen it unfold over your over the course of your life? Is it uh, have you seen a massive expansion? Is it mostly Americans that end up coming over? Because I feel I, I feel like it was I don't know when that time really started. Maybe you may be able to provide some insight. Into I mean, that. I think it has, it's definitely got more. But I mean, I do remember as a youngster growing up, I would caddy on the course, uh, you know, in the summer holidays and, and it was for Americans then. But there are definitely more now. And I think obviously after COVID, people are traveling now. So I'd say you know, definitely 90% of the tours here playing are, are American. And I would say in the last probably 40 years, it is increasing every year. What kind of an impact does that have on North Berwick as a town, let's say, or just the, the entire region? I'm wondering if you could kind of give people an idea of yeah, what... It gives, a, it gives a huge buzz. I mean, I think North Berwick, we've got like, I think it's 14 golf courses within five miles. So, um, you know, people can come over and they can play, you know, North Berwick, uh, Gallon, Muirfield, Kilspindy, Dunbar, Renaissance, Archerfield, you've got a whole host. You could spend two weeks here and play a different course every day. So, um, 
the towns just fill up. I mean, there's not that many, for people who don't know the area, it's just small little towns. I mean, we're half an hour from Edinburgh, but there's, there's really not many hotels down here. So there's lots of Airbnbs and small hotels and the place is just packed. Um, you know, you walk along the high street and, you know, as locals, you would just not drive along now because you, you never get a parking spot. But uh, so you just wander along and it's just filled, filled with golfers. Which is fun. That's a golfer is fun, actually, to see. You kind of see people walking along the street with their golf clubs on their back. <laughs> I love that. That's what I always loved about St. I mean, Andrews, too. Here, but for yeah, listeners who haven't been here, North Bear, it's kind of, I always think, like a, a mini St. Andrews. It's like a St. Andrews without the university, you know, where the golf course comes right into the middle of the town. So it's really is the, is the feature of the town. It's got a lot of similar features too. Those first and 18th are kind of parallel yeah. there with a the shared fairway and 18 finishes mm-hmm. with a drivable four kind of back into the little town. And then you change directions after one and you get a different wind direction and you get that whole way. There's a lot of, a lot yeah. of similarities. There are lots of similarities. Yeah. Without a doubt. More little walls and things you have to pitch over. <laughs> exactly. I watched your round with radar. Uh, at, oh, okay. at, at, Morning. Oh yeah. gosh, it just it I, I regret a lot not I'm not gonna be at the AIG Women's Open. I didn't go to the, the men's open and I'm regretting not spending my summer in Scotland because it looks like it just the best links conditions you could possibly have right now. It, we really do this year, this summer. Hopefully we get no rain because we really do have great conditions. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of the PGA and LPGA tours. If you don't know, the all new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with bio metric tracking including skin temperature blood oxygen and more the device features a new smart alarm designed to wake you up feeling refreshed ready to take on the day it is great at monitoring your decision making you've heard me say this many times but it just prevents you from having an unnecessary drink or maybe having the fifth drink that you don't need when you learn that hey when i have this many drinks my sleep decreases by this much and my heart rate goes through the roof and i need more rest and i'm not getting the rest and all this it's it's fantastic tool i really don't know why people would not want something like this it's great data on how you're living your life and the new waterproof device is free when you sign up for a whoop 4.0 membership for any members if you have six months of left of membership on your account you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free and right now whoop is offering 15 percent off when you use code nlu15 at checkout go to whoop.com w-h-o-o-p.com enter nlu15 at checkout to save 15 percent back to the pod Growing up on a Lynx golf course like that, I'm curious what your transition into professional golf was like, whether or not there was different skills you needed to learn. I know you competed in a lot of different golf courses, you know, I'm sure as a junior and, and things like that. But in my mind, I think like Lynx golf, there's Lynx golf and there's everything else. It's a totally different style of golf. And I'm just wondering if you needed to learn about different shots or, or different skills you needed to, you know, really compete at the highest level. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously I spent my basically my whole career out playing on the LPGA. Went moment I, I turned pro and went to Q school. My, you know, first couple of months of turning pro, I managed to get my card, and and that was me. But I think um, over in the state, you definitely learn to hit it higher. I mean, I come back now and play with friends, and you know, they hit it like probably ten feet above the ground, and I kind of soar my drives. I'm gradually now starting to learn to hit it lower again. But I think that's something you just you just adapt when you go. When I first went over there, you just realize you have to start it's more the game's more through the air so it's just a, a different type of game and I think your your game naturally adapts to that over the years I've always said that that's an extremely underrated skill of professional golfers or th- something that's not talked about enough is the fact that you have to pick up your talent put it on a plane pack it have your body feeling right and get used to a new golf course in, in a week's time in a few days time really to get going by by Thursday and uh yeah. the jet lag can be tough <laughs> <I> think- <laughs> 
The worst thing in professional golf is the travel. Everyone, most people who don't play professional golf think it's actually the best thing, but it's probably it is the worst thing. <laughs> I tell people that I, I, we went to Abu Dhabi in 2018, and I think it took me like two and a half weeks to recover from that trip. I was like, how do these, how do these people compete week to week after these yeah. international I think we flights? About a month after the season's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm also wondering. I meant to ask this earlier, but you competed in the 2014 U.S. Women's Open at Pinehurst, which was a back-to-back event right after the men's tournament, and the more I go, I went to the KPMG Women's Open this year and or Women's PGA, excuse me, and I saw all the infrastructure and everything that has to go into a week's of, worth of tournaments. And it just kind of blew my mind that these organizations don't try to double up events more frequently. It would seem like a great way to streamline things and be great for you know different regions. I'm wondering if you viewed that week as a success and, and wondering why in your mind that we don't see that more often in professional golf. Yeah, I thought that was a success, you know, having them back to back. I think for an event like that, it probably takes a certain type of golf course. You know, that golf course kind of just was the perfect kind of setup for it. There weren't that many divots. You know, if you were on a more an inland or kind of a softer fairways or whatever, you might get more divots and be tougher in the landing zones and different things. But, uh, you know, the Scottish Open had that for two or three years when they, the men's and ladies had the same sponsor and they played at the same golf course. But the I think the issue then over here is that, you know, the members don't want to give up their courses for that long, which is the is the difficult thing, I think. I think that's probably why you don't see it more often, to be honest, because I think it's a it's a great idea. And I mean, on the European tour, we have the odd, you know, they just did the Henry Kinanica, the Scandinavian mix, where they both played at the same time for the same purse, which was, which was great. I think um, having these kind of new tournaments, um, you know, one or two a year is great fun. Well, that's yeah, that that we've been yelling for that. And I'm wondering if you have any insight at all into how we might be able to see that uh, an LPGA and PGA tour crossover event of some kind. I think that would be great to see. I mean, my favorite event when I was on tour, or one of my favorite events was probably the JCPenney mixed uh, team one that they had. And that was at Innisbrook usually at the end of the year. That was a a great fun event for the, the men and ladies played together. So I think hopefully the PGA Tour and the LPGA can get together. I think that would be, especially if the top players from both tours play, I think that really would be, uh, you know, a fascinating watch. Was it the, uh, the was it the Wendy's, uh, the 3M, or, or no, what was the the, the three-tour challenge? It was Wendy's three-tour. I never played in that one, but they had this three-tour. That was the LPGA, the PGA, and the Champions Tour, wasn't That's it? That's exactly right. Yeah, I, I'd, uh, that was actually in my backyard. I grew up in, in Dublin, Ohio, and that was at that course. But uh yeah, it just seems like with all the flux going on in the in the world of professional golf, it seems like uh, kind of more collaboration would make a lot a lot more sense. And uh, oh, definitely. And I think to have seventy two whole events can get a, I mean, perhaps a little monotonous every week of the year. So I think to have the odd kind of slightly different formats, um, you know, just kind of spices it up and keeps keeps it interesting for the viewers. I think. And I, I and I think even you know the. Uh, I, I'm going to forget which Australian championship it was that had the uh, the simultaneous the Vic the Vic Open. Vic Open. I played that was that was great fun as well. Yeah. Yeah. How did that? I mean, for on television, it made all the sense in the world to have a men's and women's championship going on on the same golf course, separate championships, but at the same time, it was a you know the final groups were a women's group and then a men's group, a, wi- a women's group and then a men's group, and it was it just you're you're watching two tournaments at once, and it it made all the sense in the world, and I haven't seen anyone try to copy that since then. Yeah, I think they're doing that again this year with the Australian Open, actually. Oh, awesome! They're doing. Um, on the same golf course, uh, you know, alternate tee times. So, um, you know, I think these kind of ideas are great. I remember did a 
six-hole tournament. Um, I was playing with Thomas Bjorn. There was the Super Sixes. Um, it's just the odd kind of different thing, I think, just keeps people's interest. And I think the, the more that men and women can play together, I think, is, is great for golf. Because most golf clubs, it's, you know, they're all mixed. So, um, you know, the men and women play together. Exactly. What, what is it like having your husband as a caddy? You don't see that, if, if I may say, you don't see that too often on the LPGA Tour. And I actually see more significant others caddying for other players on tour that are not their wives or girlfriends. And I'm wondering how that's worked for you guys. I mean, for us, we were fortunate. It worked um, for 99% of the time. It was great. Um, I mean, like Kenneth, it doesn't matter who you'd have caddying for you. The arguments were probably a little more ferocious when it's your husband, but... Uh, I was fortunate enough, I played, I didn't really have any real, what you'd call slumps. So I played, I think if you had been going through a slump and playing badly, it would have been pretty tough. But, um, you know, I was quite fortunate. I played pretty well throughout most of the time, which uh, made it enjoyable. I mean, I think otherwise, you know, you'd never really have seen each other. I mean, he did at one point try caddying for, for you know, a different player, but, but that's tough as well. Because, I mean, his heart's really wanting me to do well. So what if you're kind of in a playoff together? It's not really that fair on the other players so um it worked for us i think if you don't try it you don't know yeah. we were just fortunate <laughs> that's funny i was uh you waiting with uh madeline sagstrom at the kpmg this year and they're waiting on tea times and they were just like all right please say we're in the same way please say and that's something i hadn't thought of is she her her boyfriend caddies i, f I forget who he caddies for now but uh they they just want to be in the same wave so they're on the same uh sleeping schedule it's like wow yeah. i would have never thought of that <laughs> Well, for the listeners' sake here, where does your uh, your Solheim Cup story start? Where, where, go back in time and, and say, this is when it started for me and what that experience was like. Well, I suppose it first started uh, back in 1992 when it was at Dalmahoy. Um, I think I was, I don't know how old I would have been then, maybe 17-ish, 18. And I went and watched, and that was a miraculous uh, victory from Europe. Um, no one ever expected them to win that. And then... Lo and behold, it's six years later, I made my debut at Muirfield Village, your neck of the woods. Yeah, and just loved it, loved it uh, from that first time I played in it. I've always loved uh, team competition in golf. So, um, you know, I really did enjoy it. They were definitely the highlights every two years of, of, of my career was to every after I played in the first one. That was my goal was to make that team in two years time. So you're a, a rookie in 1998. Um, you know, do they do they ease you in? Do they try to pair you with someone that's not going to get a lot of attention, or who do you end up getting paired with in your first Solheim Cup? Well, I ended up getting paired with Annika <laughs> uh, to get the first tee shot. So I don't know if that was easing me in. <laughs> that's where I was going with that. A pretty good partner to have. <laughs> Play with her quite often, actually, over the years. So um, you know, you can ask for a better partner. Take me, take me to 1998. What is Annika's standing in the game, and what's it like for you to have her as a partner? Is it, is it, is it like playing with Tiger Woods for uh, on the men's side? Yeah, I mean, I think 98. Annika was probably just, just kind of well, not up and coming. She probably had she won a U.S. Open by then. I think she was probably verging on being one of the best players in the world, if not the best at that point. So, um, yeah, I mean, we had grown up. We'd played amateur golf together, so I would say I knew her pretty well. So, um, you know, felt fairly comfortable playing with her but um you know a dream partner i would just put it on the fairway she'd hit it closer if i put it on the green she'd hold the putt so um you know i just needed to keep it in play dunt it down and dunt it on the green and, and off we went well you played a lot with her and what what made and you're right she had won two u.s women's open to that point and then she wins she oh. wins eight majors after that so you're you're, you're right in that in that regard <laughs> you must have really inspired her but what you know what 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 does speak to her greatness and her ability you know it for me it was watching as a kid I remember just the just marksman iron play just incredible accuracy with irons but what were you kind of in awe of and if you could steal a, a skill of, of Annika's what would that have been 
it would have been her shot shape, I think. I think she basically, she just hit it dead straight. She could go at any pin because there was very little movement, you know, left or right. Um, her From 100 yards in, I thought she was great. She was probably, and she'd probably say herself, not the greatest putter. I think if she'd putted like Lorena, she really wouldn't have ever been beaten. But, um, you know, she just made very few mistakes. Um, and like I say, it was her shot shape. She just hit it dead straight. And you can you can basically aim anywhere if you hit it. You know, you're going to hit it straight every time. I'm trying to think of a way to, to ask this question or kind of bring this around, but I, I'm just kind of struck by you saying when you started when you're 11 years old, you going to the Solheim Cup and that kind of influence that it had on you and it you know culminates in you being a two-time Solheim Cup captain, right? In terms of the influence that's right in front of you develops this whole thing. And I'm, I'm looking at the current state of what's going on in the men's world and what could be potentially going on in the women's world of golf and in, into the future. And uh, I just I just want to pause and reflect on that for a moment to say, like, how much of, uh, you know, I don't want to say we could be looking at a lost generation here. But if the if the if the current structure of pro golf changes a lot, then the downstream effects of that are things we can't really even know. And I, I was thinking about that watching some of the Solheim Cup highlights and watching you get lifted up on the putting green after Suzanne Pedersen hold the putt in 2019 and you have a winning captaincy to just see the joy on your face. It, it just, it was, you know, kind of comparing that to all the, I'll just say greed that's going on in the world of golf. It, I don't really know if I have a question related to that, but I, it struck me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's obviously an interesting what you know, watch this next kind of six months to a year in, in, at the moment, men's professional golf, just to see where it goes. I mean, I think all parties are, you probably think are going to have to sit down and try and talk and uh, sort something out. But, you know, I think you're always going to have the majors. You're always going to have the Ryder Cup, the Solheim Cup. I think things will hopefully calm down and they'll, they'll all come to some sort of agreement, whatever that turns out to be. <laughs> Well, it's but it's funny, you know, the where I was kind of getting at with that is how much of your professional career and life you've dedicated to this team event, right? You, it's easy to kind of you know read it on Wikipedia, but you played in '98, in 2003, in 2005, 2007, 2009, 2011, 2013, 2015, 2017, and then four straight years of cap. I mean, two two uh, Solheim Cups of captaincy, but there's years and years that have dedicated to that that are. And again, that's kind of why I got into golf. That's what I appreciate about golf. I mean, to me, that as a you know women professional golfer, that is that is the pinnacle event that you want to play. And if you're European or American, um, and I think that's still the same. The players out there that once they've played in it once, you know, you, you always just want to play in it. And a lot of them now are junior Solheim Cuppers, so they've got that kind of taste for it as a junior, as an amateur. So um, you know, then they get to stay on, watch the Solheim Cup, and they see what it's all about. So I think that. Um, kind of drive and passion that the players have for getting into these team events is, is there and is still going to be there in the future. Um, and hopefully it's just going to keep growing. I mean, it grew, it's grown so much from 98 to 2021 when my captain's at Inverness. Um, you know, you barely recognize the event. I mean, obviously a big thank you to the Solheim family for having the vision to start it in the first place. Yep. No, I think uh, that was a, a big takeaway I had too, was just, man, that was a really good idea. And how was that not there prior to it actually coming to fruition? But as you start turning towards thinking about captaincy in 2019, I'm wondering, you know, you've, you've played for a lot of different captains uh, as a Solheim Cup team member. I'm wondering what you kind of drew back on, where your instincts went in terms of here's what I want to be like. This is what I want to be like. This is the keys. This is what I need to do to bring this team together in some way. What what was, did you feel like you had the formula laid out in front of you when you became captain? I think, um, I suppose as a captain, you just, you don't, you can't really change who you are. You can't change your personality. I suppose I had the experience having played in nine under, 
probably, I don't know, five or six different captains, um, you know, and I qualified, I got picked, I kind of got into the team in all sorts of different ways. So I had that experience. Um, and I think I just learned over the years, things I liked, captains, things that they did that I liked and, you know, things that happened in the weeks that I didn't like. And I just tried to eliminate the things that I didn't like when I was playing, you know, kind of reinforce the things that I did like. So I think a lot of it was really just communication. I mean, as a player, you just want to know what's going on. They want to know whether they're playing, when they're playing, who they're playing with. So I, I just tried to be kind of put myself as a player and be as upfront as possible, you know, and, and try and give them, you know, plenty warning. I think, um, you know, you want to, it seems kind of strange, but you need the more time you can have to kind of mentally prepare, right. I'm going to be playing foursomes with so-and-so, you know, if you've got, if you're just told that the night before, it's nice to know that maybe one or two days out and you can kind of both kind of mentally prepare for how you're going to play the golf course. So that was kind of just how I approached it. It was really communication, get to know the players um, and try and be upfront and tell them what, as much as I could about what I was thinking. And for a long time for team golf events, I've, I've not appreciated what goes into team golf. And it was honestly being at, the, at Inverness that kind of, it, it kind of clicked for me a little bit in terms of it looked like this is my opinion. I'm not putting words in your mouth. Look, like the U.S. team was there to play golf, and the European team was there to play team golf. And it didn't. It, it if the some of your players looked like they didn't care what they looked like. They didn't care how cool they looked. They did. They were just they sold out for their team. They were there to go cheer on players. They didn't care if they looked silly cheering or whatever it was. It was just like I'm going to give every effort I have for my team to my team. I owe it to my team rather than putting pressure on my golf. It's just like I want to be the best teammate I could possibly be. And it just kind of clicked. And I just didn't know if that is something you just accumulate. Playing playing in a team, um, you know. I tried to tell him, you know, your one or two top players aren't going to win it for you. There's whatever, 24 points. Um, you know, you need everyone in the team to play well. Uh, so, you know, you, the more experienced players, you know, have to make the rookies feel comfortable. They have to, you know, gel and get on. There's no point. You need every, you need all, you need at least 11, if not your 12 players to all play well and contribute. So that was kind of our key. We wanted every player to try and contribute at least half a point because, one or two players playing really well aren't going to win it. You need, you need, it's a team event. You need the whole team to play well. So I think it was kind of trying to get that ethos into the team, which to be fair, wasn't very difficult. <laughs> uh, so they were all there supporting each other and, you know, trying to help each other and trying to make the, the newer players feel more comfortable and, you know, tell them what to expect. Yeah. I, I guess it, you know, taking it to the, 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 maybe the fifth level, it was just like, it felt like that environment, that atmosphere is what allows you to play your best golf, right? Instead of being so focused in on, I want to win, I want to win. Here's what I have to do to win kind of Mm -hmm. the, the, the feeling that you can kind of, uh, you know, spread that pressure out across the team. I don't know. It it just kind of clicked. Yeah. As I said, no one remembers if, well, I suppose people do remember Leona played really well, but at the end of the day, in 20 years, no one's going to remember Leona won four and a half points. They'll just remember here at one. So an individual record in these team of things is slightly irrelevant, really. It's all getting that 14 and a half points. That's all you need to do. It doesn't matter who gets the points. <laughs> well, and it's got to be interesting, you know, as you're the one making decisions on who's going out and what pairings, how how easy is it or how challenging is it to identify who your hot hand is, right? It does not mean it is going to be the number one ranked player on your team when that week starts. Is it something you kind of have a hint at on Wednesday or is it first session you see, all right, that person's not sitting until they, you know, fall off the, the, the map or whatever? say you see that in the probably two or three weeks leading up to the tournament I mean I've never been a probably because I wasn't the greatest practice round player I've never been a great one in 
you know, studying form and practice rounds because some people play well in them and some people don't. So I really looked at the form running into the two or three weeks before and that would kind of formulate the pairings for the, the first day. And then and then you get an idea of how people are playing. Hmm. The Mel Reed Leona pairing, what that uh, uh, we've talked to Mel and Leona on this <laughs> podcast about it this year, but how did that come about? And how, uh, you know, is that something you identified or? Uh... Kind of just kind of worked out that way. I mean, a couple of the other pairings, um, you know, Anna and Matilda were going to play together, Georgia and Celine, you know, they'd played so well at uh, Glen Eagles, I was going to put them together again. And then I think it was Charlie and Emily. And just the way it worked out, Leona was playing great golf that year. Mel has such a passion for the Solheim Cup. Um, you know, I, I just thought that could be a really good pairing. Um, you know, when I told them they were maybe going to be playing together, they didn't perhaps see that being quite such a good pairing. But um, I told, just said to them, go out there, kind of, I'm sure neither of you will be as awful as each other think you might be. <laughs> and they ended up getting on great together. So um, I think their perception of each other was... Uh, vastly different from what the, the person was actually like well then they paired up the this past week at the uh did i see that yeah. right at the, at the you must have been on to something there yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was at the at the dow that's right but mm. what uh two wins two successful captaincies did you know in 2021 that you were not going to be a captain going forward is that a decision you know something that was offered to you is that a decision you make what is uh what goes it i knew basically when i took on 21 just after i the Gun Eagles, I knew I was never going to do it. And I, I, that was going to be it, regardless, win or lose. Um, I think it's just one of these things. It's, it's such an honor to be, you know, the captain that it was someone else's turn. There's always another, you know, player coming up and it, it's just kind of their turn. And it just worked out. Suzanne was in the perfect place in her kind of career. That It just it was the natural progression. And I think it just would have been greedy to go on and try and do it three times. That makes sense. Any chance of assistant captaincy for you? I don't. I haven't. I don't know if the cap, assistant captains are, are announced yet, or if I'm. No, I'm not going to be no, an assistant okay. this year. <laughs> time to move on from that. What can you give people an idea of? What kind of a, a time commitment it is to be a captain of an international team, uh, and you know what that timeline looks like on a year-to-year basis? Yeah, I mean, I think um, when you're home captain, um, well, maybe for me it was slightly different because I lived probably only an hour and a half from Glen Eagles, so um, being home captain was was quite a commitment. You know, lots of. Uh, media and promotion and different things and then for Glen Eagles I was still playing on tour so you know I'd watch the players and see the players when I was out playing uh for Inverness I wasn't really playing and it was COVID so I'd travel out to you know two or three tournaments during the year just to see all the players so um you know I mean it, it's quite a commitment but I loved it so I mean I'm hardly gonna I'm not gonna mump about it I enjoyed enjoyed every bit about it apart from probably having to pick the team <laughs> I've I, admittedly I've only covered women's golf since 2018 is when we really started covering it and uh, it seems to me again and I'm starting on that timeline that there seems to be great momentum in, in terms of fan interest, television interest, sponsors. The AIG is you know ponied up a lot of cash for the AIG Women's Open, KPMG a lot for the Women's PGA, USGA just doubled the purse uh, for the. And it seems like the majors are, are racing to outspend each other and it feels like. There's some real momentum and talking to the players, they feel that. I'm wondering if you could kind of give perspective on that as somebody whose career has spanned a longer time period than most of the women we've had on this podcast, but kind of give us some perspective on the growth of the uh, women's Yeah, golf. I would say probably in the last 10, 15 years, uh, and you've really seen it grow, women, women's sports in general, to be fair. Um, and then I would say probably in the last five, if not two, three years, women's golf really has exploded in the, in the purses, as you say, in the majors suddenly you know, zooming up. Um, I think obviously women's sport and golf in general is is really benefiting from the real 
equality drive that all companies are wanting to do. You know, they, they're wanting to do equal spending on, on men's and women's, which is, you know, a fantastic opportunity for the women. And, you know, it's great to see, I think, women's golf. I mean, we've probably been a global tour for the last probably 15 years. So, um, you know, and so many of the companies coming into golf sponsorship are global that, you know, it's a, a natural fit for them that we, you know, they play all around the world. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think you're only going to see women's golf, I think, go up and up. As you say, we're playing on great golf courses now. Um, obviously, with the USGA, the, the RNA now running the AIG Women's Open, they're just going to keep going up and up in stature. Well, and it's, it's you know, I look at how the LPGA and the Ladies European Tour have co-sanctioned events and how the LPGA Tour has weeks off and... It almost it, it is a a better product in terms of the best golfers, best women golfers get on the same golf course at the same time, way more frequently than they do on the men's side. And it seems like there is there's something there in terms of look if you want to sponsor an LPGA tournament, you're gonna get these players. Like it may not be all the top twenty, but you're gonna get eighteen of the top twenty, something like that. And it seems like that that is kind of the blueprint of how that it's going to continue to grow is to say like, we are a, a, you know, a collective group and we're going to market together and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I would say both the LPG and the LET, they've kind of come to their optimum number of tournaments they want a year. I mean, they don't want, you don't want, the players don't want 52 tournaments a year. The viewers don't want 52 tournaments a year. So um, as you say, if you can have, they've gone for, I suppose, perhaps fewer than the men, but trying to, as you say, then they get better better fields on the whole because, uh, you know, the players have natural weeks off. So all the top players play more often together, which is uh, what people want to see, get that rivalry going between the different players. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell our, uh, let me preface this with our mostly American audience, uh, what the honor uh, of an MBE and an OBE, first of all, what that means and uh, what kind of an honor that is and uh, what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, that's actually, it's a, it's a huge honour. Uh, you know, an MBE is a member of the British Empire, which, uh, you know, the royal family give out. And I was fortunate enough to get my MBE, I think, back in, I think, 2010, after I'd won the, the Women's British Open. So, you know, yeah, I mean, my husband and myself and, and my mum and dad came down. We kind of drove into Buckingham Palace. And, um, you know, it was just a, a fantastic experience. And, um, you know, you go, I think it was Princess Anne when I got my MBE. So she, you know, gives it to you. And and then the OBE, the Order of the British Empire, which is a, a one upgrade from an MBE. <laughs> um, I got after winning the, being the winning captain for the Solheim and, at Glen Eagles. And I actually got that with COVID, you know, it kind of got delayed a little bit and ended up getting it at Holyrood uh, Palace in Edinburgh just in January. And it happened to be Princess Anne again. I think I don't think the Queen really does any now. It's either I think it's Princess Anne, Prince Charles, and Prince William. So um, you never quite know who you're going to get. But you know, for obviously a British person or a member of the Commonwealth, it's a it's a huge honour. So um, it, you know, it's just a it's a great thing for the whole family. How does it? How does the uh, the hierarchy work? You have you know MBE, OBE, an MBE, OBE, and then a CBE, and then I think a knighthood or a damehood. OBE sitting right here in our kitchen counter. <laughs> here you go. This is what you get. Oh, you get look at that. Metal pinned on you. Look at that. It, it, so. our, uh, I, I mean, we know Dame Laura Davies. Are there other women in golf that have, that have reached damehood? Is I, can you give us a history uh, no, lesson? Laura's only one. Only yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Gauss and Nicholas and MBE. Uh, so yeah, not many of us. <laughs> you, you must have needed three Solheim Cup, uh, you know, winning captaincies to, to, <laughs> to have gotten that. I think Laura deserves her team. Just <laughs> won a few more tournaments than me. <laughs> we got to play pool with Laura at the uh, at your uh, at your celebration. We got to sneak in your guys' celebration at 2021 Solheim Cup, and we got to play pool. And that was a that was a great team room, I must say. You guys, how if you were to estimate, we I asked Mel this too. What? How many times did we are the champions play on repeat in that uh, team room that night? I dread to think. I dread to think. Yeah, <laughs> that was. I yeah, that certainly was played a lot. Shall we say? I still Probably got a little Americans mad in the room next door to us. <laughs> I still got a little hangover for whatever concoction was in that in the Solheim yeah. Cup that we had a little drink of. <laughs> Last one, we'll get you out of here. What? Tell us about what happened at the a uh, unique story that happened in the 2009 Avion, um, in uh, in in your hotel. That was, um, as you said earlier, it was my first tournament back in a warm-up for the 2009 Open at uh, Lugham, which I happened to win. And my husband and myself had gone over. We'd left the kids at home, and my mum and dad were meeting us at Lugham with them. So I think I was just enjoying having a rest and the peace. And I was, uh, it must have been about 10 at night, I was in bed. And at that point, the only point you could get Wi-Fi was out in our balcony. And then it sounded, to me, it sounded like it was raining. So I said, oh, you need to come in, it's raining. He comes in, it's not raining. And then our kind of hotel was built into the hillside. So it had a balcony, but the door was round the back on the kind of, not the, on the ground level, I suppose. So we opened the door and there just flames everywhere, uh, a wooden kind of building. So we kind of rushed in, back in, panicked, ran out without shoes on. My husband burnt his feet. And then there was no fire alarms or anything. So we were running around the building shouting, fire, fire. Um, and eventually I think we had Amy Yang and her dad in the room next door to us. And by the time they woke up, they couldn't get out their door because there was too many flames. So it's quite a funny story, actually. The dad threw a mattress, very quick thinking, actually, on the ground and then threw the clubs first. And then Amy jumped onto the mattress. <laughs> but anyway, we survived that uh, kind of a pretty scary night, actually. And then it turned out it was a Molotov cocktail. A disgruntled employee had thrown one at the on the roof. So... Um, but anyway, we survived and went on and played the tournament. Uh, husband couldn't caddy because his feet were kind of badly burnt and we'd lost all our clothes and everything. I think Christy Kerr actually was sponsored by Lacoste, so she got uh, a goodie bag of clothes for me that week, which was nice. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, certainly a different week from my first one back. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I guess it's funny now that we, we know that. I assume no one else was seriously harmed, but... Uh... No one no one was hurt. Wow. No. I didn't. I did not know it was a Molotov cocktail that started that. But yeah, yeah. A, a weird way to wrap up our time together here, Katrina. But thank you so much for joining, and best of luck at the uh, AIG Women's Open. We definitely look forward to watching, and uh, hope to do this again sometime in the future. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most!